This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Catholic Review Radio. I'm Christopher Gunty, Associate Publisher and Editor of the Catholic Review. Later on today's show, George Matisek speaks with Emily Cazella, the author of a new children's series that helps young Catholics understand how Catholic families practice their faith all over the world. But first, we talk with an expert on J.R.R. Tolkien, Dr. Holly Ordway. Holly Ordway is the Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute and visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is the author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth, Beyond the Middle Ages, published this year by Word on Fire Academic Press. She's also a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies and a published poet. Welcome to the show, Holly. Nice to be here. J.R.R. Tolkien brought us the world of Middle Earth in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Your new book addresses the scholarly debate about whether Tolkien was influenced only by literature from the Middle Ages or and not from any modern literature. Why is it important to know what the author read for inspiration? Is it a matter of whether he's always looking backward or whether he's looking forward or what? Well, I think it helps us to just better understand his work, for one thing, and to better understand the creative imagination that formed it. So, for instance, The Lord of the Rings has some, you know, frankly, prophetic engagement with very modern issues, totalitarianism, um, the abuse of power, um, environmental degradation. And it, it can be easy to dismiss these things as, oh, just sort of Luddite, you know, anti-technology, you know, nostalgia if you think that his interests were only oriented towards the past. Uh, and there have been some scholars who have known that he had a wider range of, of reading than that, but predominantly the consensus has been that he read only medieval literature, and that certainly has been the sense in the wider popular reading. So if you think that he was only oriented towards the past, I think it becomes easier to ignore or discount the really powerful things that he says about frankly, very modern issues. And I think that helps us to appreciate what he's, what he's reading, what he's, what he's saying, and, and the power of the Lord of the Rings and all of his work. Mm-hmm. Who were some of the modern writers who Tolkien read, and how did they influence his thinking? You mentioned in the book authors as diverse as Dylan Thomas and Mark Twain, uh, which might surprise some people. Well, it's interesting because there are some specific authors that he engages with. For instance, there's an adventure author um, named S.R. Crockett that he names straight up as, as providing the inspiration for the scene of the wargs in The Hobbit. And that was a great example of, of the interest value of looking at his sources. Because when you look at that scene in Crockett's novel, you see that Tolkien has actually made it more profound in his revisioning of it. He's heightened the power of it. He's made it um, just more, more effective. But I think, you know, what really is most significant is not so much any one individual author, 
but the fact that he did read so widely and you have all these different threads coming in. So for instance, when we look at the creation of the hobbits, um, I was able to trace that one inspiration um, was a book called The Marvelous Land of Snurgs, um, a children's <laughs> book where Tolkien actually says that the hobbits are, were inspired by the, by the snurgs, but also there's an element of Beatrix Potter's rabbits and then Tolkien himself said that he got the name Hobbit in part from Sinclair Lewis's book Babbit, and that the character of Babbit had some similarities with the Hobbits. Now, Sinclair Lewis is an American realist author of satire. That's as far as you can imagine from the fantasy world of, say, Snurgs or, or Hobbits. And what I think it shows is that Tolkien is really drawing from many different threads, you know, adult realist fiction, children's fantasy fiction. Um, he's drawing it together, and it helps us to really, I think, see why we have such a rich and robust flavor and texture in his literary creations. Yeah, and I think we see probably a difference between just the world evolving. The Hobbit came out in 1937. The Lord of the Rings trilogy dropped in 1954 and 55. So that has to affect the way the author looked at things, right? Absolutely. When he first, when he wrote The Hobbit, it was very much a children's story. He didn't at the time think it was going to connect to his wider legendarium. And then he began The Lord of the Rings as a sequel to The Hobbits. And he originally started it out as, you know, a light, fairly light hard sequel. And it became darker, richer, and became really a novel for adults by the time that he was finished with it. And I think it makes sense that he's drawing on a wider base of, of influences as, as he does this richer, deeper, um, more adult book. Mm -hmm. How did Tolkien's being Catholic affect his worldview and how did it shape what he read and what he wrote? Well, he was very much um, a devout Catholic and he was very clear that everything he, he put into his world was consistent with the Catholic faith he was very clear that this is simply true. And there is one God in Middle Earth, just as there is one God in, in reality. So he imagines elves and dwarves and all sorts of fantastic creations, but fundamentally he's, he's operating in his secondary world, his fantasy world, as a place where the moral reality is exactly the same. And I think that is part of the genius of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit is that you get you know, a sense of the reality of goodness and evil and virtue and you and the workings of grace sort of transposed into this fantasy, you know, key. But he's very consciously working out of his own faith. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I think his Catholic faith, because it was so strong and so deep, it enabled him to read authors with whom he disagreed quite profoundly. Um, and to be able to appreciate their merits without being defensive. So take, for instance, um, the author E.R. Edison, who was um, a fantasy author, very much not a Christian, um, sort of a, a kind of pantheistic pagan. And Tolkien praises his work highly, uh, says he's a, you know, one of the greatest writers of fantasy literature that he knows of. But he also calls out Edison's philosophy and calls it evil. He's very, very clear that Edison is, is wrong philosophically, but he's able to note his power of imagined world construction. And we see that pretty consistently. He does what I call influence by opposition. So he can read somebody that he disagrees with, and he can sometimes be influenced by, you know, like saying, oh, I want to do more of that, or I want to adopt that idea. 
but with authors like you know, Edison or others where he disagrees with them, sometimes we see this influence where he's reacting against it and saying, okay, that's the wrong way to set about things. That's the wrong idea. Let me do it better. And I think that gives us such a healthy, robust, wholesome approach to Catholic creativity because he's not afraid to read people who he disagrees with, but he's also not shy about indicating, well, that's just wrong. That's evil. Uh, and let me do something better. Let me do it right. I think he's had a great influence on other writers as we go along. And even if you just look at the Harry Potter series, uh, Gandalf, Dumbledore, they're, they're awfully, <laughs> there's an awful lot of similarities there. How much has he influenced other writers in the last century? Oh, tremendously. It's, it's almost impossible to overstate the influence that Tolkien has had on the genre of fantasy. I mean, basically, the Lord of the Rings reshaped the entire field. It's not, it just it completely transformed it. And ironically, that has made it somewhat more difficult to appreciate the power of the Lord of the Rings because there's been so many imitations, so many second-rate or third-rate kind of copies of it that sometimes people can, at this point, be a little bit ho-hum. Oh, elves and dwarves and little people on a little quest, you know, whoop-de-doo. But th th that's because we've had so much imitation of him. So I think that when we go back and kind of set aside our, our you know, preconceptions and encounter his work afresh, we realize just how powerful and how engaging and dynamic it is. Mm -hmm. And he created a new world, the same as L. Frank Baum did with Oz. Uh, and yet that world is still being watched and viewed and read. And I mean, there's just everybody is still very much engaged with Middle Earth in ways that probably he could not have imagined, right? Well, I think he hoped for it because his aim, he said, was to create a mythology for England, for his own country. And I think I think he would have hoped, even though modestly he would not have expected there to be this kind of engagement. Um, and I think, too, this, again, is why it's so useful to know that he read widely in modern literature because if you think about it, you know, why should this particular imagined world continue to be so popular and so powerful? Well, it's because he's able to engage and tap into some of the deepest issues of modernity. How does he do that? Because he's aware of them. He wasn't stuck in the past. He was interested in the news. He was, he was interested in modern literature and modern styles. He was engaged. And because he's so you know, such a genius creatively, he's able to transform it in a way that it's timeless, but it's timeless in a way that's engaging with modernity. And I think that really is a big part of the kind of the secret of why he continues to be ever increasing in popularity. It's not a coincidence. It has to do with the particular way that he went about his creative project. Mm -hmm. And it is well-written and exciting and all of that. I mean, you, they wouldn't have made all those movies out of it if it if it hadn't, uh, if there hadn't been an appeal for it. So uh, I think that does explain a lot about why J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and his other literature have had such a lasting impact on the world. Yes, he is definitely one of the greats. And I think I think he'll go down with, you know, in, in the literary history, he'll be put next to Shakespeare and, and Dickens, I think, because he is a truly great writer, a great prose stylist, just a, a great writer all the way around. Very good. Well, our guest this first segment has been Dr. Holly Ordway talking about her book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, 
Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, just released by Word on Fire Academic. Thank you so much for being with us today, Holly. My pleasure. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll meet the author of a new children's series that highlights ways the Catholic faith is practiced throughout the world. I'm Chris Gunty, and you're listening to Catholic Review Radio. Archdiocese of Baltimore makes the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org accountability. News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. Some in-person activities for kids have come back this summer. Every table under the trees in one area of Patterson Park was filled with children in bright green t-shirts focused on their lessons. It didn't take long, however, for the tables to empty and nearby fields and playgrounds to fill with the shouts and laughter of 100 children attending Camp St. Vincent, an outreach of St. Vincent de Paul of Baltimore. Camp St. Vincent returned to the East Baltimore Park this summer. Last year's sessions was held inside area homeless shelters where families were hunkered down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Vacation Bible schools returned as well, such as the one at Immaculate Conception in Towson where 65 campers engaged with each other. One organizer said the goal of Vacation Bible School has always been to bring God into the daily lives of the children and ensure they have fun while doing so. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. Now this is different. Imagine a pilgrimage where the faithful gear up with scuba fins, oxygen tanks, and snorkel sets rather than hiking boots, sun hats, and trek poles. That's what happens in the crystal clear waters along the Italian Riviera near Genoa. Pilgrimages to the bronze statue of Christ of the Abyss, an 8-foot tall sculpture submerged 56 feet below the surface of the sea, were featured in the Vatican newspaper La Servatore Romano, July 28th. The statue, located offshore halfway between the small coastal villages of Camagoli and Portofino, was the first known statue of Christ to be placed in the sea as a sign of his peace and protection for those who live, work, and play by the water, and to be a place of prayer and to commemorate those who have died there. For more on this and other stories, visit catholicreview.org. From the virtual newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm Kevin Parks. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Welcome back to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek. Emily Cosella is on a mission to help young Catholics understand how their counterparts live out our shared Catholic faith in countries around the world. Serving as director of the Very Young Catholics Project, Emily has produced a series of books designed to introduce young Catholics to Catholic families in countries ranging from Togo to Fiji. Aimed at readers between 6 and 11, each book is vividly illustrated with photographs showcasing Catholic culture and everyday life. Emily, who was raised in Blessed Sacrament Parish in Chevy Chase, is a lawyer and served as chief financial officer to a network of Catholic schools. 
She is a lifelong Catholic, mother of six, and grandmother of 14. Here's our conversation with Emily Cazella. Emily Cazella, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. It's a pleasure to be with you. So how did you get the idea for this book series, Very Young Catholics? I was a voracious reader when I was little, and I loved um, the books that sort of hit that age group 7 to 12 that show the ordinary life of a child um, Mm -hmm. in places around the world. I loved them. And then when I was thinking about Jesus's command for us to go out and teach all nations, I thought, well, you know, how are we doing on that? And, and and what about all those children around the world that are all going to church just like my children and grandchildren? What what are their lives like? Um, and I set out to find out, and sure enough, there were Catholic churches in every time zone of the world and wonderful little kids uh, going to church in them and having very different lives but the same faith. And how many books have you done so far? I'm working right now on number nine, which is um, set in the Galapagos Islands of Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the other countries that you cover? Well, I began with the U.S. just to be sure that I um, could understand what I was doing and that I wouldn't be uh, looking in other countries for something that was right at home. Um, Then I went straight off to West Africa, to a tiny little village in West Africa in Togo. Um, Then for a huge contrast, I went up to Austria and showed the very ancient traditions of the church that, uh, because Austria became Catholic in about the year 150, um, then I went off to the other side of the world. Fiji is the place where the international date line is. So that was sort of symbolic for me in trying to get 24 time zones. That's a really special one because that's the first time zone where we change from one day to the next. And there's a wonderful, a lot of the uh, people in Fiji are Catholic, but right, right on the date line, there's a parish, um, a Catholic parish that had a fantastic, um, a fantastic choir, a fantastic set of priests, uh, a wonderful school. So um, it was a great discovery to sort of bring home my points. Uh, Taiwan, I'm, I finished, and Canada. Your books introduce readers to different families around the world. Uh, how did you connect with the families, and then how did you choose what to include in your stories? Every time it's different, finding the family. Sometimes I'm lucky enough to uh, to find the pastor of the parish and write to him or if the parish is run by a um, order of priests, then maybe I'll write to the Father Superior. Sometimes I know a friend who has a friend. Uh, the family in Taiwan, a, a wonderful, wonderful family, I found because they were friends of a friend of mine. So uh, it's always a hunt. It's always a challenge because I'm asking total strangers to let me take pictures of their family life. But when they see the books, the prior books, and see um, how they themselves always become enchanted by the prior books, and say, oh, well, we can do this. This isn't scary. This isn't hostile. This, I would, nobody's judging us. They're just showing lovely pictures of family life. So, mm-hmm. um, And then when I'm writing about it, I'm, I'm always praying, of course, as well. So I did a, a lot of research both into the countries I went to and into the Catholic faith so that I wouldn't say anything wrong. I always have a few priests check them. But I'm also praying all the time, Lord, what do you, what do you want to talk about in this book? Um, not because I'm preaching. You know, you've seen the books. They're very gentle. I'm not the one to preach a big, long Catholic doctrine thing. But I am the one to say this Catholic doctrine is the same everywhere, and each book has a little bit of a story about whatever was special in that place. And the photography is just stunning in the books that I've seen. Why was it so important for you to, to have a visually dynamic element to the series? 
I wanted the child reader to feel as though they had stepped right into that other country. And pictures, um, you know, drawn pictures, illustrations were not going to carry that for me. But these are real children. They are real families. They are in real places. These are their real lives. And when you see those pictures, you can tell. You can, you can see that sweet child's face and think, I could be friends with that child, um, especially if you're a nine-year-old or 10-year-old reader. Um, you're looking at another child who lives thousands and thousands of miles from you, but is going to church on Sunday in our universal church. And that's really the point that comes across is when I go to church on Sunday, I'm just picking up from the little girl in Fiji who said mass. She was at 7 a.m. mass 12 hours ago. And she said the same prayers I'm saying. Uh, and that's the point that all of the series carries through over and over again. Why do you want to give children a global perspective of the Catholic Church? Why is that important? I think it makes it, I know, that it makes it much easier to understand and believe and, and, and really cherish our faith if we realize that it's much bigger than our own parish. When you're nine years old, you feel as though God lives at your parish church. And, and of course, when you're trying to get past that to the realization that God is throughout the entire universe, um, you can begin by thinking, okay, he's, maybe he's in another, maybe a, a church in another country. Maybe I'm trying to push that idea that all those children all over the world are all praying the same prayer. Um, and then you can sort of see, no, God's there just as much as he's in my parish church. And that, it makes your faith considerably more solid when you realize um, what an unbelievable job the Catholic missionaries have done for the past 2,000 years, getting to every corner of the world. I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny little places that you'll never hear of. Um, you put them into Google and say Catholic Church, and up comes the parish bulletin for the most remote island in the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a um, it's a tribute to all of those great believers and to all the believers that have hung on. Has your faith, your own personal faith, grown or changed or evolved through your encounters abroad? My faith, in a sense, was very sturdy, but I'll tell you what has um, grown is my immense respect and pride, because these are these are brothers and sisters of ours who have been out there doing mission work from the year from the day that Jesus said, "Go forth and teach all nations." They set out. 2,000 years ago, and right up to today, one of the stories I tell in the Togo book was a missionary reaching a village only about 15 years ago that had not um, seen him. Uh, he, he preached Jesus to them, and they asked him if he was God, because this was news to them, that God loved them, and that God was not just a little lump of clay at the, at the entrance to their village. So it gives you that uh, pride that we that we know that God is one, that He loves us, that He fills the universe, um, and then we can visibly see it in all these gorgeous, gorgeous places around the world, where wonderful little children are going to church. And how do you hope families will use these books? Well, I'm seeing it already, and it's so fun to see. So some of them are just buying them to read, just as a fun book. Um, then the homeschoolers are starting to pick them up, both for geography and for religion class. The, uh, the award that we just got for uh, Faith Formation Series was, was going in that direction. So um, the homeschoolers, of course, love it because it's a good um, geography tool. It's, as soon as you start mapping all the places that I've been and all the places that I'm going as they study, um, they, I, I'm already in all continents. 
um, the Ecuador book will be the uh, South America, and um, that's just a lot of fun. Uh, I should almost all continents. I don't think I'm going to get to Antarctica, um, <laughs> but there are Catholic children there, so I might, if, if I'm lucky, I'll get to Antarctica too. How do you arrange all this travel? It, it seems like a, it's very ambitious to to go all the, to all these places. How do you how do you support your travel? <laughs> um, it was a mission a ministry that my husband and I decided on when I retired. Um, so we are not asking for donations. Um, we just manage it, um, and it's a it's our courtes- our pleasure and our privilege to do that. And do you have a favorite so far of the books you've done? One that's special to your heart. I'm going to sound just like a proud mother when I say this, but um, which I, my favorite is always the one that I'm working on. Um, uh-huh. I love them all. Each, each one I say, well, now this one's really my favorite. And then I go to the next one and then that's my favorite. But um, readers who want to start with one that's really fun um, and really easy to enjoy might start with Canada. But to be honest, tons of people start with Ireland. I have a couple of people who adore the Togo book above all of them. So um, I think each book has its fans. How can people order the books? They're easy to find, and there's three ways to do it. They're all on Amazon. Um, you have to dig around very young Catholics, and then uh, just, you know, you can everybody can do an Amazon hunt. So they're all on Amazon. Um, you can go to the website, veryyoungcatholic.com, and you can buy them there. And then, to be perfectly honest, any child who sent me a note saying, I'd really, really like to buy a book, but I can't manage PayPal, or for that matter, if their mother, father, or grandparents did, we would find a way to get them books. Um, and for parishes and schools that don't have any money, I just honestly send them. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not, um, I'm not willing to have any child miss out if they would enjoy these books. So we just get them to them some way. It's a great series. Uh, my, my kids are loving it, and my, my my wife is a homeschooler, so I'm sure this is going to come into the program as well. Oh, I'm so excited. That's great. Well, Emily Casella, the director of the Very Young Catholic Project, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. For Catholic Review Radio, I'm George Matisek. Thanks for listening. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.